Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-416 of the Run Run Live podcast. Yes, I did that thing where I published two episodes out of order again. Last week was episode 417 and next week will be episode 418. But today we wrap up our series on running form and we talk with Nate who commands the run experience in California and is an expert on running form, as it turns out. So I I put those things together. You may hear some odd noises in the background towards the end of this interview. <laughs> I was trying to do too much. Yeah, I know. And uh, I was walking the puppy in the woods behind my house. At the same time, I was interviewing Nate on my phone. And we got in, uh, we got going a bit later. Then I had planned, and when I looked at my watch, I realized I had to get back to the house for another call. So I went off trail. I took a shortcut through the underbrush, and you may hear me crashing around a bit. But every everyone made it home okay. So anyhow, how are you folks doing? I got some new members in my membership, my subscription, in the last couple of weeks. And when I ask them, I say, hey, what can I do for you? They say, just keep doing the podcast. So I guess I can handle that. Sets the bar pretty low, actually. <laughs> I'm sitting in my house on Cape Cod in Harwich, Massachusetts, because in the morning I'm going to get up and drive over to Hyannis to catch the 610 high-speed ferry to Nantucket, where I will pace the 150 pace group at the Nantucket Half Marathon. There are a lot of other plans that involved other people, but all those fell through, so it's just me, just me doing it. They were having trouble finding pacers for this race because it's out on Nantucket, which is an island in the Atlantic off of Massachusetts. Uh, a 150 is a little quicker than I would usually volunteer for, but they needed that more than uh, any other pace, so shouldn't be a problem. It's only an 8, what, 823, 825-ish pace. And it's only a half marathon distance, so yeah. And we'll see if anybody even shows up looking for that pace. I might not have to do anything. I'm not feeling great. 
I took a couple weeks off, like I told you before, after Beantown, but it didn't help my sore butt at all. I still have this, I don't know if it's a hamstring or a piriformis or or something going on up there, but it really hurts when I sit for a long while, and it also kicks in about, you know, 14, 15 miles into a a race uh, where it, basically I, I lose that ability to lift my leg. And I start dragging that right leg. But, uh, yeah, when I sit for a long time, it really hurts, which is basically the definition of my life, sitting for a long time. I have the Bay State Marathon scheduled for next week, but at this point, I'm actually thinking about switching, dropping to the half, because I have serious doubts about my fitness and my ability to race. And I feel like my body is telling me something. It's telling me to stop running for a while. My thinking is to switch to some other fitness routine for the rest of the year and try to get my flexibility and my core strength back. But I'm also loath to lose all the fitness that I've built up and have to start over with that. So I need to find something aerobic to replace the running. And when I took those two weeks off, I did do a medium effort bike workout on the Peloton in the gym. Uh, and that still, I found that still aggravated, whatever this thing is, in my bum. So I guess I could swim, but logistically, that's such a pain. I'd have to join a club. I'd have to rebuy all that stuff. And, you know, you got to go over there. It's it's just a pain. It's a pain. I'd love to get into some sort of class-type thing that could give me that core strength and flexibility, but I'm not super confident I'd be happy with anything, you know, CrossFit, yoga classes, I don't know, but I need to find something different. I'm a bit rudderless right now. So in section one, we'll wrap up our form discussion. In section two, I'm going to talk about brown rice. Yeah, why not? Why not talk about brown rice? Let me share a story that I forgot to share last time from the Beantown Marathon. So late in the race, after I had already crashed and was limping home, I had something amusing happen. It was a loop course, so later in the race I was lapping slower runners, right? The last few laps I was lapping people. And I passed a lady pushing a double stroller with two toddlers in it. Good for her, pushing two kids, and I'm assuming probably her kids for a marathon distance. But as I passed the stroller and pulled ahead, one of those kids yells out, Dada! That gave me a chuckle. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Finishing up on form, what else do we need to know? Over the past few episodes, we talked about good running form and why it's important. By now, you're convinced, and you've been working on it, or at least thinking about it, your running form. In this piece, I'm going to talk through some of the related situations and supporting activity. First, let's talk about uphill form, running uphill. You may have noticed in your own practice or in races that inexperienced runners alter their form significantly when they're confronted with an uphill. 
You will see them do this. You will see them lean into the hill, maybe hunch over, shorten their stride length, really slow down. They're essentially battling the hill. That is bad form. If you do this, you not only slow down, but you waste energy. And a lot of this is mental. You'll see this in races too. People look up, they see the hill, and they automatically drop into this hill battling form even before they get to the hill. So this, this, if you have this habit, you, you have to break this habit. Instead of mentally and physically switching to the bad form, when you look up and see the hill, switch to the good hill form. Now, if you can mentally make this switch, it's actually very powerful. You convince yourself that you're good at hills and you love hills. You're going to pass a lot of people who fear the hills. Uphill form is essentially just good form. Some coaches will add in hill work to teach you good form. It's quite hard to land on your heels when you're running up a hill. The hill forces you onto your forefoot. As you approach this hill, straighten up your posture, push those hips forward, Keep your center of gravity under you. If it's a steep hill, you may need to lean forward a little bit, but you're pushing your hips, and that lean comes from the ankles and the foot strike. Pushing your hips forward engages your core, and your core pulls you up the hill. The only bit of nuance in this is that you will probably lift your knees a bit higher as you're on the hill, and you may find it helps to pump your hands a little bit too. And you can imagine strings connected from the from your knees to those hands. And as you pull the hand up, it pulls the knee up. You may find that helpful, especially if you're trying to go fast uphill. What about running downhill? Well, the key with running downhill form is, again, not to fight the hill. The hill is an opportunity to use gravity as free speed. You want to fall with the hill, with the gravity, and land as lightly as you can. You don't want to break. You don't want to jam your feet into the ground and take all your weight in the quads. You want to keep your feet moving fast and light so that you minimize that breaking and you minimize the impact. To do this, you need to find a sweet spot of a faster cadence, maybe a little bit faster turnover, bump, 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 bump and maybe a little bit longer stride length. When you get it right, you should feel like you're floating or flying. And you can spread your hands out a little bit for balance, too, while you're doing this. Pull your elbows back to shift your center of gravity without heel striking. So pull your elbows back, push your hips forward. Same good posture, hips forward, landing on your forefoot, fast, light cadence. Just let go and fly. So what about exercises. Are there any exercises we can do to help our form? Well, one of the things that really helps maintain good form, especially at the end of long races, is core strength. All those core exercises, those abdominal exercises, those planks and yoga, it's all great for strengthening your core and helping your form and your posture. And this is especially true for uphill strength. You really use your core running uphill. Your coach or any experienced runner, any experienced athlete can share with you some simple core routines that you can do two or three times a week, and you'll really feel the difference. It doesn't take a lot of time and effort. It just takes consistency, 
And of course, flexibility helps as well. There are a few hip opener routines that help release your hips so you can get that smooth stride, that smooth knee lift, forefoot strike, and follow through. That smooth stride requires a little bit of flexibility, so you can work flexibility into your routine as well. So are there any drills you can do? Yeah, of course, there's tons of drills you can do for form, and I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. I would recommend just searching YouTube for running form drills, and you'll find some great tutorials. If you want to get an idea of sort of the hardest part, the posture, the lean from the ankles and the forefoot strike, that form, try the following. Stand about 12 inches from a wall. Straighten up your posture. So you're standing straight. Your hips are forward. Your head is up. Your shoulders are back. Right? You got that nice upright posture. Hold your hands up by your chest, a little bit in front of you. And slowly lean forward at the ankle until you just start to fall forward and catch yourself with your hands. This is the posture you're trying to get to. So you're actually mid-fall the whole time and your forefoot strike is just pop, pop, catching you as you fall. Another simple way to learn your body is to practice the form drills barefoot in the grass. This takes the shoes out of the equation and gives you that natural proprioception of your feet. So your feet muscles can spread out and feel the, the ground. It's great for your balance. And as mentioned before, you can download music that has the appropriate beat to mark your cadence. And this won't necessarily help your form, but it will get your cadence correct. I've always been a big fan of speed work to help improve running form. It's hard to go fast with bad form, right? It sort of forces you to clean up your form. And you don't have to start with 1600s out on the track. You can throw in little 20 or 30 stride pickups. Just throw those into your runs. And, and when you do these, focus on form. Do that every once in a while during your runs. And it, eventually you get better. And also, as mentioned before, one of the best ways to learn form is to have someone who knows good form watch you. And many coaches will do an initial form evaluation for free. The last time my coach looked at my form, he saw some things that I could do better. Specifically, I was rotating my hands too much. Your hands should go back and forth in line with the elbows, not swing around the body or side to side. But there is no silver bullet here. Everyone has their own unique idiosyncrasies. When it comes to form, you're going to have your peccadillos, just like everybody else. If you've never looked at it or thought about it, chances are you'll see big benefits. It, and it's something you can practice for your whole life. Form practice is part of the runner's journey. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Nate. Give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking. So my name is Nate Helming. I co-founded a company called The Run Experience about five years ago, and it was born out of my own experiences and misadventures and early frustrations with running. I was the athlete that got injured a lot and was always having to tinker with something, but it opened up this door into coaching and further understanding the body more. 
And I realized that there were a lot of other runners that were like me. And that turned into posting some videos online on YouTube, seeing some traction there, then releasing some video-based programs, really showing runners how they can strengthen, improve, and work on their own bodies while they're training for a marathon. And now that it's since turned into a full-on training app that people can download and use. There you go. So tell everybody the funny story we were just talking about of how we realized that we actually kind of know each other already. Yes. I've been out in California now for the the last 13 years, and I'd say that my New England edges have softened a little bit, but I got my start in the Boston area, and we went to the same high school and actually ran on the same cross-country team. Yep, and we didn't even know it. So you may have been there. You may have overlapped maybe one year with one of my kids, actually. I think Katie might have graduated in 2010, maybe. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. I graduated in 2002. And then yeah. I went to BC, so. Boston College, in 06. So I was in the area. Yeah, yeah so both my kids she went there, too. She would have, so. um, yeah, she, she probably would have, because my brothers went there, too. She would have uh, run into probably my youngest brother, who I think, well, I want to say graduated at a similar time. So there you go. It's a small world. Just another lesson for everybody. Don't piss anybody off, because it turns out we're all like six degrees of separation, right? <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. So we were talking earlier what we were going to talk about. I've been on a um, sort of a, a multi-part series talking about form. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's uh, super important from my point of view, people are always asking, you know, what kind of shoes, what kind of workouts, should I do this, should I do that, what about my diet? And it's like, well, the first thing you should probably do is look at your form because your form will take mm-hmm. care of a lot of those other things. So give us your 200 words on form, and then I'll ask you some specific questions. We'll dive right into it. I have sure. Notes. So, oh, good. I'm excited. That's the first question, Nate, is why is form important? Right. So form is a function of how our body moves. And if we can maintain better, more aligned mechanical movement for longer periods of time, not only are we going to be running more efficiently at the end of those races, but we're also less likely to break down. I think the biggest thing that all runners experience when they run long enough, it's like falling off a bike. It's not if, but when you're going to crash. And with a lot of runners, the crash is in some form of overuse injury. And I think overuse injuries sometimes, some people think, oh, they just happen. They come out of nowhere. But I like to say that unless you get hit by a taxi cab stepping off a curb, rarely do these injuries come out of nowhere. They always have some sort of source. And the the tricky thing with running form is that you could have had a season the previous year where you did everything and what you thought was right and no injuries occurred. And you come back the second season, you repeat all the same stuff, and all of a sudden your knee is really bothering you. And the frustrating question is like, well, man, I did the same thing I did last year. Why am I getting hurt now? And what you don't necessarily realize is that there could have been something in your running form from day one that has been there the whole time. And now you're only starting to experience issues with it. Yeah. So I know this is a hard question, but walk us through what that perfect running form looks like. I know it's different for everybody, but there's kind of a, a template for what that looks like. Yeah. Personally, I think the everyone runs different. It's a little bit of a cop-out answer. Like, I think we all have the same 
hips, knees, ankles, and shoulders. Our lungs work the same way. Our knees hinge the same way. So across all humans, like there are certain rules for movement that are really important. And I actually want to extend this question a level above running form because before we talk about running form, we have to talk about how you sit and how you stand, how much range of motion you have in your hips, your shoulders, and your ankles, and how our current lifestyle affects that. Because I find that if I have someone who is incredibly, to use a technical term, kyphotic, meaning their upper back is really stiff because they're hunched over their computer board all day and they've done that for the last 20 years. And I don't know if you didn't grow up with a smartphone when you were younger in high school. Texting neck is now a problem as kids are spending more and more time at younger ages hunched over their screen and they're starting to see changes in kids' cervical spines at really young ages. So if I take yeah. this kid who has an incredibly stiff upper back, their shoulders are internally rotated, they have no extension, and I say, hey, I need you to stand upright. And I need your, your arms are swinging across your body a lot. I need your arms to swing more north-south. He can't do that because he doesn't have the range of motion because of the way his body has adapted to his lifestyle. Right. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And that, so it's that, like, yeah, you know, that goes to some of the other topics I want to talk about, which is how do you get there, right? And it depends on where you're starting. Right. So I like to bring that in before I talk about, like, what's sort of perfect, because I think that's so important. Like, running form is not an arbitrary thing we can change. It, to me, is 100% a byproduct of how much range, strength, movement, coordination our body has. And if we have more of those things, our bodies tend to naturally run better. And we have more of those things when we're younger as kids, right? So it's one of those things where it's like, huh, when I was five or six, I didn't necessarily need running lessons. But all of a sudden, when I'm 15 or 25 or 35, when a lot of us start running, we're like, ooh, what, what has happened? <laughs> it's like things have, have changed, and we're starting to use running to get ourselves back into uh, fitness and into just to explore different areas about ourselves. But all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, our body, like, we need to reclaim some things before we do that. But for the run yeah, form stuff that I like to start with is just that posture and position. How upright can I be? that straight line from ears, shoulders, hips, knees, ankles. Yep. Can I have those arms at that roughly 90-degree shape going roughly north-south as opposed to east-west? Can I think about getting my hips driving the ship forward, putting ourselves, once I drive my hips forward, that makes sure that my glutes are engaged, I get better hip extension, my legs swing more naturally out the back. Every time my foot lands, I'm a little bit more stable. And then I can start to think about not only pushing off the ground, but pulling my feet up off the ground. And when I start to do that in unison, that gets me cadence and turnover. And then finally, if I'm doing all of those things, we don't have to worry about foot strike as much because the foot strike has kind of taken care of itself. And I know some coaches like to start with foot strike first, but I prefer to start more top down in picture because it's been described to me that your foot is at the end of this long kinetic whip of your car, of your body that basically starts at that midline in your pelvis. And if I'm not fixing things up top, it's like I can't just arbitrarily change how my foot interacts with the ground because I'm sure as you've seen, if someone has told their heel striker, they don't change anything else, but they just start running on their toes, they're just going to swap one problem for another. Yeah, yeah. And that was a lot of few years back when everybody switched to barefoot at the drop of a hat. It 
broke a lot of people because they didn't have the whole chain in sync. And I think that's a great question, a great way to look at it, because a lot of the runners I'm dealing with are not people like you and I who ran in high school, right? And sort of had mm-hmm. at least at least a little bit of understanding of form and kinetics and sort of that muscle memory of doing it in high school. Sure. You know, they're starting fresh. And if you're starting fresh at 40 years old, you're going to be tight. You're going to be a heel striker. I mean, all that stuff, right? So how do you mm-hmm. unwind all mm-hmm. that? Where do you start? So for me, it's about getting runners to think beyond just the run workouts they do. And from day one, getting them into some form of strength training and mobility work and saying that, hey, this is all part and parcel of the same thing, right? Like rather than only doing strength or injury prevention, mobility work when something's wrong, you do it in the beginning. And what's great about working with beginners is that they're pretty open books. They're kind of open, like you tell me what to do. I'll sure. Okay, (laughs) I'll do this. So with a lot of my runners I work with, I usually have them doing two day a week body weight strength session. So they don't even have to go into the gym. And yeah. the, the four movements that I have every runner start with is a squat, a push-up, a lunge, and a burpee. And if you can master and understand those four movements, you can take a lot of those concepts and move them into your running. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and what um, the, and then with the, the with the running itself it becomes a bit of mm-hmm. a practicum because you have to have that picture in your mind of what the baseline is and where you're trying to get to even though I agree with you you can't change overnight but you got to have that picture of where you're trying to get to and then you sure. you have various practices that you put in place to try to burn that stuff in right mm-hmm. because it's a practice it's over time nobody's ever perfect right you're not perfect i'm far from perfect especially when i get tired sure. right <laughs> yeah, um, yeah so so i mean these I think, people they're running i think that's right? another interesting love... question on i was going to say i think another interesting thing about running form is that even for those who have quote-unquote good running form, it's going to change throughout their run. So there's a very different thing of if you're getting your run form analyzed by someone and you know you're paying attention, it's like the same thing of like, oh, I see a race photographer, I'm just going to perk up a little bit. Right. But like, what do you look like when no one's watching? Like, that's the truth. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I'll tell you, one of the experiential things where my form went from kind of average to better was when mm-hmm. I started doing a ton of speed work on the track, um, trying yeah. to qualify for Boston. I went through these couple of years when I was just down there pounding out 1600s at marathon pace minus a minute and a half. Right. And that cleaned up my form because you cannot right. do that with 34. Right. Which to me is really interesting because you're like, what is it about running faster that helps things? And to me, it's I'm running with a little bit more focus and intention, but also, and I literally say this, like tension in the body. Like if I have a, an athlete in the gym and uh, let's use a uh, back squatting as a correlate for running intensity and speed. And I'm first teaching them how to squat. They might have a PVC pipe on their back just to practice. And what's interesting is like when if they only have a PVC pipe, I can take them through some squats, but they don't have enough intensity in there to give them any type of feedback on how they're doing or to see where they're at. But as soon as I start to add a little bit more weight on the bar, all of a sudden they start to feel everything engaged and they're a little bit more focused and involved. And then when they start to squat, they start to see those greater levels of engagement. So ironically, I talk with some runners all the time, getting you lifting heavier weights 
is actually the route towards being a safer runner because it's a way to bust out of the older movement patterns that were probably getting you in trouble in the first place that you weren't aware. And all of a sudden, when you go heavier, you confront them and you build better ones. And I feel like running faster is a similar thing. All of a sudden, I've got greater mechanics. The turnover has to be higher. I have to be more upright. I'm getting that better push off the ground, that better extension out the back leg. And all of a sudden, I know what it means to run at those higher tension levels. So I'm just not running loose and sloppy all the time. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, the other thing I've had coaches tell me is to do the same thing with uphill running because that sort of forces you into a cleaner form. It does. And uphill is really nice because it's a great way to introduce speed work for new runners, right? Because there's just not as much pounding. The ground is meeting you as you go up the hill. So for a lot of times, it's getting used to those faster runs. It's just like getting the Achilles, the feet, just used to the, the pounding that comes with those higher speeds. And running is just uphill. is just a little bit of a safer way because the pounding isn't as there. But you get all the engagement and that higher level of tension. So the other thing that it's important for people to understand is that there's variations of form depending on what you're doing in terms of uphill, downhill, on the track, on the road, on the trail. So running on a trail is a a way different form. Not, I mean, not way different, but it's a different form in terms of foot plant and cadence. And each one of those things is sort of a learned practice, right? Sure. Yeah, there's always a little bit of a difference between those movements. And and I think that's where notions of specificity are important, depending on what you're trying to prepare for. If you are, I remember running the uh, North Face 50K a couple years ago, and I was doing tons of trail running in preparation for this race. And out in Marin Headlands and on Mount Tam, it's beautiful. It has close to 6,500 or 7,000 feet of vert. So you're just constantly going up or downhill. And then I remember after that, I joined a friend of mine. And I was out for, I can't remember, six hours, five and a half, six hours, something like that for that race. And I remember joining a friend of mine for just like 60-minute flat run on the pavement, and my body was miserable because I was off the trails, and all of a sudden, I was locked into this movement pattern where it was constantly changing all the time, and my body was just used to that slightly different trail technique. So it took me a while to readapt to that again. But uh, what I realized, too, is just the variability is nice. I was just in uh, New England seeing some family up on the coast of Maine, and there's this run around this island that I used to do. It's fun to do because I've been running it now for 20-plus years. And I go back to this road. I'm like, I can't believe I ran on this road for so long. It has, like, such a big crown on it, which are things you don't really get out here in California because we just don't get the rain and the snow. But, like, you were to run on the same side of the road the whole time. Like, you have one foot that's, like, running on its edge because there's such an angle. and even remembering how to like which sides of the road and go the other way. Those were mistakes that I took a while, took a few reps to, to learn how to uh, avoid. Right. So if we have these folks who are, because the benefits, it's one of those things, right? Where the benefits of working on your form far outweigh the effort, but it's not like a quick fix. It's something you got to practice over time. Yeah. So people mm-hmm. tend to not do it. What are the three steps? What's the you know the top three things? What do they do to get to start? The first setup, I think, would be going back to what I was talking about, just making sure that your body is in a better moving position. The first step is that before every run, we need to have some sort of dynamic warm-up in there. And I kind of jokingly say that 
slow jogging is not the best warm-up for slightly faster jogging, especially if you're just waking up in the morning, you're coming off of uh, out of work or out of your car, your hips are tight, your shoulders are stiff, hamstrings and glutes aren't activated. So standing, doing a few squats and lunges, doing some leg swings, it could take two minutes or less. It doesn't need to take long. But that would be number one, because that gets me engaged in thinking about my body and then opening up my hips and shoulders so that when I first start running, it feels better. For anyone who their first mile or two feels like absolute garbage, and it's not because they just ran a really hard race in those last couple days, it's usually because you have not done a good job warming up. So that, to me, is number one. Number two is going to be just with intention Like, we have more interesting things to focus on. Initially, we need to put some attention to this, but how do we habituate this as much as possible? So having one or two runs a week where it is a little bit more form-focused, where you just focus on one or two ideas. Today, I am going to breathe in and out through my nose for 10 breaths every five minutes. Today, I'm going to count my cadence and see where I'm at every five minutes and see if there's any changes or focus on my hips. Just choose an idea. And then each week, you just have that intention and then it becomes automatic. The third thing is that this is addressing like, hey, maybe I can hold my form in the beginning, but I start to fall apart toward the end. How strong am I? Maybe I'm not that strong and connected. Can I start to do at least a one-day-a-week or two-day-a-week 30-minute strength session where I'm working on some basic body weight stuff just to improve my ability to hold myself upright for longer periods of time? Yep, and I kind of like yoga for the hip opening because I like the combination of the strength and the flexibility, and I can really feel it. I could do the hip opening yoga. So um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to move you towards the exit because i got another call right now. So give us the link where people can find you. Sure. So if people want to learn a little bit more, watch our videos, you can go to therunexperience.com. From there, you can download our new training app. We put out new, three new videos out each week on YouTube. We are the largest running channel on YouTube right now, which is kind of cool. You can find us there for big tips and workouts and strength exercises and to help you problem solve those injuries. Awesome. Good stuff. I'm going to let you go, all right? Thanks for getting on, and uh, Omnibus Lucid. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your day. I will. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. On brown rice. This is the type of thing you can only get at the Run, Run, Live podcast. Uh... In the mornings, before I leave for work, I will start some rice in the rice cooker. One of my strategies for eating well or eating better is to know my weaknesses. One of my weaknesses is at night, when I'm tired. I make poor nutritional decisions. It's just a bad habit. When I come through the door, I want to eat something and I want it to be hot and filling. If there isn't something healthy to eat, I'll scrounge around for whatever I can find. And this can result in less than optimal life fueling. Impromptu cheese burritos or peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I have less willpower at night and I make bad decisions. I know it's a habit and habits are hard. 
And I have a few strategies to work with this habit. And if you remember from our habit discussion, the key to successfully changing behaviors vis-a-vis habits is not willpower. Willpower doesn't work. That's a low percentage bet. I just won't eat junky food at night. That's a losing strategy. The key to changing behavior is to co-op the existing habit. So if I start something in the rice cooker, whether it be rice or beans or some other quinoa healthier food, it can cook all day and be ready to eat when I walk through the door. And even if I eat the whole two cups worth, I'm still coming out ahead of the game by avoiding a sleeve of cookies or a bag of chips. It leverages the existing bad habit for a better outcome. Because at the end of the day, pun artfully inserted and intended, I'm just trying to eat better. So making healthier food the path of least resistance is my win. The people who follow the keto diet or the protein diet, they don't like to eat rice. They consider it a bit like pasta, white and refined and full of bad carbohydrates. I get it, but that's not the rice I cook. At a bare minimum, I cook brown rice, the brownest rice I can find. And I try to buy it in bulk, which is not as easy as you think. In your standard American supermarket, it's hard to find high-quality brown rice in bulk. As my radical vegan friends will tell you, the food industrial complex does not want you eating that. Well, actually, the food industrial complex doesn't really care what you eat as long as it is efficient and profitable, which means they want you to buy something processed. Why? Well, processing is where the food processors make their money. This, in the business world, is known as value-add. If you can take the raw material and add value to it through processing, you get paid for that value. If you just pick it and present it, you don't get paid for processing. That's why most of the foods, even the staple foods like rice, are highly processed in the American supermarket. That's where the money is. And it also, by natural extension, eliminates the variety of the raw materials. Not not the variety of the goods on offer. You can get a constantly changing rainbow of variety in the processed foods. This variety is created through processing. You can get the strawberry pancake mix and the blueberry pancake mix and the boysenberry pancake mix, but it's all the same processed mix the same raw materials. This variety is processed variety or value added in the business sense. The business gets paid for the variety created through the processing and it is their way of differentiating to create premiums that drive profit. But the raw material, the grains going into the big machine, they're all the same. Efficient production since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution has relied on driving out variability. In production, variability is bad. Variability reduces quality. Variability increases cost. Because of this, the varieties of rice and apples and corn tend to be skinnied down to those that can be farmed consistently without variability on an industrial scale. This is a long way of saying Having varieties of brown rice doesn't scale well or add to the bottom line. That's why they're hard to find in my 
market. Those varieties that I'm looking for, they become a specialty business. The specialty businesses, they need to charge more because their production isn't as efficient or at the same scale. And this is a long way of saying, if I want some wild rice to eat, I have to buy it in a small bag and pay three times as much as the processed white rice. Into the rice cooker, I put whatever the least processed rice I can find is and leave it to cook all day. Then when I come through the door, I can gorge myself on hot, sticky rice or use that rice as the base for some other foods. It's really something to look forward to. Now, the great loss here, if you use your health as your measuring device, the variety is where the value is. It's the brownness of the brown rice that makes it healthy. It's the variability and the variety of the wild grains that give us something unique that we need. The odd-shaped, the strange-colored, and the unique-flavored. That's way out on the tail end of the spectrum. And that's where we're going to find the special stuff our bodies really need. Now, before you yell at your phone in a loud, angry, accusatorial manner, accusing me of being a hippy-dippy, communist, pinko, anti-business freakazoid, I have nothing against mass production or efficiency. I'm just saying it drives out variety. As a matter of fact, as a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist myself, I recognize that efficiency drives out cost and waste for everyone in the whole ecosystem, which is a good thing. I won't go too far down this path because, well, I'm starting to sound like Karl Marx, but one of the promises of the new smart technology is that we may be able to get both the mass production efficiencies with mass customization personalization. And that's cool. But maybe we've burned in a cultural groove. Maybe we've created a cultural habit, a love of mass production and this cultural drive to kill off variety in all its wonderful forms. I guess this might be a metaphor for our world today. Why are we constantly trying to drive out the variety from our world? Why force sameness on everyone and everything in society? It is in the variety of our world, each specimen having its own strengths, that when combined make us wholly strong and less fragile. There's nothing evil in being efficient. The value of mass production is its efficiency. That efficiency means there are fewer resources required to produce the end product. From the production point of view, that's a win. It costs less to make, therefore less to sell. The percentage of your personal resources and the total resources required to acquire it is smaller as well. Removing the variability is a great savings, but it makes us fragile and specific. I think the real goal should be the end goal, whether it's food or society, to have the healthiest, most robust population. Anyhow, that's my brown rice story. Sometimes I make beans. Don't get me started on the beans. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have used that perfect form to stroll nonchalantly to the end of the Run Run Live podcast. 
episode 4-416. So I read a couple books this week. I finished David Goggin's book, Can't Hurt Me. It was a decent read. Very inspirational. It made you feel like you could do anything, like you could run through walls. I did not see him, but he was out at Leadville. He likes the ultra running. He really likes to suffer. One of those things that he talked about that I found useful was using your past successes as proof that you can do whatever that new thing is that you're attempting to do. So you make an inventory of those times when you broke through, when you succeeded, and you pull those out when things get hard. And I, like I said, I'm not in a great place right now in any of the aspects of my journey. Uh, it's useful for me to be able to go back through that inventory of all the amazing things I've been able to be part of and be able to do in my life. And it gives me patience, gives me gratitude, and even a bit of courage. Courage. We all need courage. The other book I read last week was Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said by Philip K. Dick. I found it in Starbucks. They have a little basket of books in there. You know, people leave books, take books. I'm going to leave some books in there. If you're listening to me, you probably already know who Philip K. Dick is. He was one of the most unique science fiction writers of our time. You see his stories in the movies. Most famously, his story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, became that cult classic Blade Runner with Harrison Ford. Great movie. But also, The Man in the High Castle you might be watching right now. That's Philip K. Dick. A Scanner Darkly, which I believe had Keanu Reeves in it. A Minority Report with Tommy Cruise. Total Recall with Arnold. And The Adjustment Bureau which uh, had somebody famous in it, too. I can't remember. So all those were Philip K. Dick stories. It's it's hard to describe a PKD. That's what they call them, PKD, those of us in the know. It's hard to describe his books. They're all richly tailored alternative universes, but close enough to our own reality to make us just a little bit uncomfortable. And I would recommend that you read through some of his works, some of his notable works. Uh, this one I was reading won the Campbell Award. It was it was hilariously set in 1988, which was 15 years in the future from when he was writing it. But that's how the book opens in 1988. So I thought that was funny. The thing with PKD is that these themes they're science fictiony. But it's not really science fiction. It's more philosophical fiction. It's not spaceships, ray guns, beautiful women. No. The alternative universes are abstractions for him to ask very reasonable questions about unreasonable things and things that matter. It's, it's very interesting. You should, uh, you should read some dick. <laughs> uh, Nantucket in the morning. Bay State next weekend, then slow things down for the winter months, try to get my kinks straightened out. Ollie the Border Collie is doing great. He's still a terror. He's turning into a teenage terror. He's learning how to chase the ball and sometimes even bring it back. He loves to run on the trails with me. I run and he zooms around. He's a good dog. 
but he has way more energy than any of us do. He's got more love than we do. I take him to work sometimes and let him bother me there. I To get outside at work, I have to go down three flights of stairs and walk through the basement to the loading dock to get him outside. And I suppose that's good for both of us, a little exercise there. He's making friends with all the ladies in the smoking area. When I went to the dump this morning, the lady there, she already knows about Ollie, and she says, hey, where's Ollie? She's asking for him. He's such a cutie pie. And he loves everyone so much, he just draws a crowd wherever he goes. And that's it for me. I'm cooked, and I have to get up early, super early. So reach into that cookie jar of past achievements that you're proud of, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. There are a few hip opener routines. Oops, that chair's rocking. 